This is Chill Bill coming at you live from Catro, introducing another segment of the 10th anniversary celebration of Skylanders Portal Casters. Over to you, Inklander. Thanks, Chill Bill. For our next segment, we are joined by an incredibly special guest, someone that has worked on video games for quite a while, worked on the cult classic series Star Control, and of course was integral in the designing of Skylanders Portal of Power. We have Robert Leyland with us. So Robert, welcome. Thank you for joining us for the podcast. No problem. Thanks for having me. So I guess tell us a little bit about uh, how you were introduced to tech engineering and what inspires your tech creations. Good question. In my childhood, um, my dad uh, got me interested in electronics by um, building a crystal set. That's a, a radio that doesn't use a battery. It just uses the power that you get over the airwaves to power a, a headphone or an earpiece. And uh, I, I did electronics when I was in uh, middle school and high school. I got an amateur radio license, all that kind of stuff. And I was all set to do EE, electronic engineering. But a funny thing happened, which was uh, my high school in, their, in a nice AP math class had uh, access to a computer. And uh, you've got to understand this was in the like, 1970s. And so I was programming punch cards and Fortran on punch cards. And uh, I liked the programming aspect of it. And um, my electronics took a major backseat and I got doing more and more coding. Uh, when I went to college, um, I was getting A's in my computer science classes and B's in my physics and E's side. So the writing was on the wall. <laughs> and uh, I got doing um, more and more coding. I was in, I grew up in New Zealand and uh, high tech was important there, but it wasn't nearly as big as it was in California, which is where I moved to. We had access to uh, microcomputers. So I built a, a 6800 based uh, this probably doesn't mean anything to you guys but a 6800 based evaluation kit and uh, uh later on got um a commodore pet if you remember they they made the commodore 64 later on the pet was the earlier version and uh, a friend of mine who got one wanted to um make a game and he was always he was sort of disappointed because the graphics were hard to deal with and was hard to do stuff so I wrote him some routines in assembly language that animated a character on the screen. And to demonstrate it to him, I had the character do a little sword fight animation. Anyway, he, he wasn't up to doing it. And I ended up expanding the sword fight animation into a game that got published by Automated Simulations, which turned into Epics. And that moved me to the US. Um, and I got working from there. And pretty early on, that's when I met Paul Ritchie. Paul is the founder of Toys for Bob, and I've now known Paul off and on for quite a while. Getting on for 40 years, we've been um, doing, doing projects together or in parallel, side by side. One company I worked for, we hired Fred Ford, who later became Paul's partner. So for a little while, I was Fred's boss, and Paul went to work as, as a partner in Toys for Bob. And then I went to work for Toys for Bob, so Fred became my boss, which is, which is great. Fred is a super smart guy. And uh, off and on, we did projects, um, including Star Control, Pandemonium on the, uh, I did the Saturn version of that. And there was a bunch of other titles. I, I can't even remember them all now. There's um, Disney's Extreme Skate Adventure, Downhill Jam, and other skateboarding game. And then eventually we came up to Skylanders. And when we were doing Skylanders, this is, you know, like 2008, I guess. There were lots of crazy ideas being thrown around. But at that time, the Wii had just been released. And there was a lot of push to um, create strange input devices to it. You know, you guys, you guys have obviously seen some of the results of that. There's the um, the Wii Fit, which turned into Ring Fit on the Switch. And then there was, uh, I think Activision actually made a skateboard. 
and uh, anyway, we, we, we made the, the portal for Skylanders based on that. And so all of our early development on Skylanders was, uh, was on the Wii. What happened was um, a bunch of people, they were trying to make different input devices for the Wii. And the Wii had a had nice little interface um, that you could kind of get at under the hood. And, and it, it like rekindled my interest in doing electronics. I mean, the whole time I'd been uh, living in the US, I'd been accumulating odd bits, thinking that at some point I'd get back to my old hobby of electronics. And this was an opportunity to to do it. And so when they said, well, we need something to connect to it and can, you know, what can we do? And I said, hey, I'll give that a go. And the, one of the nice things about Toys for Bob was if it worked in the project, anybody could sign up pretty much to do anything. So we had people making models for toys with rubber, rubber, you know, rubber models and poured PVC, you know, like a heated PVC uh, and, and uh, epoxy. And uh, we would glue RFID tags on the bottom of them and use them with the with the portal. And initially, the RFID tags were just the numbers, sort of like one to nine. And we had a, a lookup table because we didn't have lots of different toys. So we just had a half a dozen toys, and each of them had their own unique number. And the the whole first demo of it was done with with a with a, essentially a lookup table for the for the toys so if you were rfid tag number six you were spyro or you were uh gosh who, who else did we have in those days oh we had um uh, the rock dragon uh, and uh, a couple of other characters you have to excuse me i will refer to some of the characters names by their internal development names because i've played with them a lot more like that and even with my grandkids when i'm playing with it playing with it i'll call them by their developers names and they will correct me which is kind of fun and uh, um and it, it kind of went from there i mean amazing yeah and i i know exactly who you're talking about though i have bash on my desk currently so <laughs> thank you bash yes, yes. <laughs> as do i actually i mean he's such a great character he really is yeah. so i guess uh you've already touched on it a little bit and we we actually back in season one did a whole episode on it but like what is the technology behind Behind the portal of power and how does it work we weren't allowed to say when it was first released <laughs> um we were supposed to say it was magic and uh, while i while i liked that i also kind of wanted kids to get a to to be able to like pull it to bits and try to figure out how how it might work but um it was uh, it used uh, rfid which is uh, basically the same technology that's in nfc and the stuff that you know like most cell phones have it so when you do Apple Pay or your Android Swipe, whatever it's called, that's the same technology. It's a radio, little a radio frequency communication. It's not actually radio communication. Uh, it's like it's not broadcasting like a little radio. The RF stands for the is for the frequency that it's using, which is thirteen point five six megahertz. More than you needed to know. The same. That's the same stuff that's used by Oyster cards, by the Hong Kong metro by uh, i think the subway in paris it might also be being used in new york but it's like used all over the world as as a, a as a for payment systems and for um some some places for inventory tracking and a whole bunch of different uses it's a super useful tag so uh, just to let you know so each toy has an rfid tag some have more than one um, the swap force, for example, you would end up with two tags, one for the top and one for the bottom, but I'm getting ahead of myself. On the tag is some information about the, the toy itself and which variation of the toy it is. So it'll have a number on it that says this is Spyro, 
um, uh, and another flag on it, you know, another value on it that says which year Spyro, which which year of uh, edition the the Spyro comes from, because Spyro is in in pretty much most of the games, so he has the probably the most numbers. Some of the characters, I mean, and there'll be information about the variants too, like what um, what color scheme they have. Or, all that kind of stuff that's hard coded on the tag so once the once the tags created that doesn't change and then there's read write information information that can be changed which is things like how much money you've collected which challenges you've completed what what your um, user user defined name for your toy is you know the the, the usual sort of dnd type things where people have upped things like which which path you took on the tech tree and uh yeah there you go rfid yeah it's it's really cool and you mentioned that it's you know radio frequency and i think we talk about this a little bit in in the portal technology episode but this is the same kind of stuff that like nikola tesla was kind of messing around with and i think it's just really amazing that a, a lot of his work has kind of been able to translate so much so into the modern day and especially with stuff like nfc and with rfid yeah, I, you know it's funny you should mention that because um, that, that's definitely one of the one of the things I I'm, have been interested in a long time. And the RFID, the the way the system works is the little portal broadcasts some energy. It cr it creates a magnetic field above the portal, but it's a vibrating magnetic field, and it vibrates at thirteen point five six megahertz. So you can't put a magnet in it and and feel it being moved around. But that power that's being generated. Um, is what enables us to uh, light up the LEDs in in giants and the light core characters. And it was going to was planned to, or we, we explored having it power all, all kinds of other things in the in the toys. Towards the end of Skylanders, NXP, the big uh, electronics giant, had come to us with a couple of chip designs that they thought we might be able to use and and if we'd been if skylanders had continued we probably would have put them but they unfortunately would have probably ended up being in premium value toys and an awful lot of skylanders was um dictated by you know external forces market management marketing and so on but we did have plans to use that power but one of the things we, we always joked about was we wanted one that would zap kids <laughs> do a give them a little, little tiny electric shock <laughs> But yeah. for some reason, that never passed the uh, safety people. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so that, we kind of had a question about that, actually, <laughs> was about how the light core feature kind of came about. But also, if there was anything that you ever tried to power with the portal that didn't make it into the final game. There were a lot of things that didn't make it into <laughs> to make it. One of the things we had probably during Giants, I made a RFID tag with electronics on it that had a heartbeat, and that didn't make it into the game until Imaginators. That took four games to get back into the game, and so the uh, Imagination Crystals have heartbeats. Um, and that was it directly from the first things I built using little timer ICs and, and powered stuff to, in, into it. And that one made it through. There were a bunch of things we did, particularly for track team, that didn't make it into the game. Um, at one point, we, had, we were experimenting with uh, the uh, liquid paper stuff. The, um, it's electronic paper and liquid crystal displays that 
we're going to show what was inside the trap on a little screen on the, on the side of the trap. But it really was clear that we couldn't do that. It was, first of all, it was too expensive. And secondly, it wasn't very magical. It didn't really fit the feel of the, of Skylanders. And uh, so we were, we were much happier with what we ended up with using the, um, the crystals and the audio component to sell to, to basically convince you that, that you had a, had a, a villain in the toy. And uh, um, I've got to credit one of our audio engineers that it was absolutely genius when he, when he did it the first time. And and everybody came into the room and he played this little audio clip of the guy being captured into the trap and it used the Wii, the speaker and the Wii remote to, to play the sound of the, the villain being captured. And everyone went, oh, that's it. <laughs> and uh, we figured out how to add an audio system to the, um, the portal, which took quite a bit of effort and a lot of work getting past Nintendo's, particularly Nintendo's certification requirements. There's a lot of engineering that goes in to get these things to work. And uh, we were really happy with the result. Trap Team, one of my favorites, favorite games because of the the way we, the, the way it worked. And the, the portal itself was really neat with the light pipe around the perimeter. And, uh, and it was really the first time we did a full redesign of the portal. Yeah. Um, it, it like trap team to me is still magical like as as an adult that knows this is near field communication like yeah. and i have a rough general understanding of how it works this is still like ha having that effect happen still to this day where the audio transitions from the game to the portal is still one of the coolest things i think i've ever yeah. seen <laughs> Oh, good. I'm, I'm glad you like it because that truly was one of the funnest things. The other fun part about it was figuring out how to make the RFID tag fit into the crystal and work. And we almost did too good a job because sometimes you can get the crystals to work outside of the, the enclosure. But uh, yeah, that was that was pretty neat. That does lead into another one of our questions. The question being, how many tags can be read by the portal at one time? Why was there a need to introduce a new portal for Swap Force? And how does the trap slot work? Is it just a smaller and less accessible NFC reader? There's several several answers. The Spyro's Adventure portal um, could only read four tags at one time. And for Swap Force, they needed it to be able to read more tags than that. So they redid the software and a little bit more engineering on the portal to increase it. And that was actually installed in the Giants portal. The Giants portal can read, I think, eight tags. But the original uh, Spyros portals, the ones that were battery powered, could only read four tags. When they made Swamp Force, um, that was a VV project. So we had a little bit less, toys, I, I was at Toys for Bob, and we had a little bit less input on, on that. We, we, we actually worked pretty well with them on Swamp Force, but some things were done separate from us. And uh, so they redesigned the plastics on the portal to make it less expensive and um, also just to basically to differentiate it. There are some like mechanical issues with making the portal smaller and lower the way Swap Force did and then the way Superchargers did. Th those portals will work fine if you're on a, on a regular table, but if you're on a mirror table, mirror surface table or a metal table, they don't work anymore. You have to put them on a box or something to get them clear of the metal table. We redesigned that because it needed to handle more tags. So the, the ultimate answer is eight. I don't think any of the later portals handled more than eight. On Trap Team, the little slot is using the same antenna. It's actually got its own loop 
that is added to the loop and so there's a there's a coil called a pickup coil you can think of it as an antenna but it's it's really more like a, it's really more of more of a coil and the trap socket has its own loop that's in parallel with the main antenna so it's the same reader it just reads both um, and the traps, if, you, if you're really careful, you can hold one of the traps on the edge of the uh, track team portal um, near, the, near the white rim, and you can pick up uh, the, the, ta the, the tag from out there as well. That, that makes sense, because that's the same kind of thing that happens if you put two portals next to each other. One's able to feed off the energy of the other, so basically that's how the trap slot works. Yep, exactly. Yep. As an experiment, once we stacked about eight portals high, and only the bottom one was powered, and we were still lighting light core toys on the top portal, which was really fun, <laughs> just as a, like an engineering demonstration. <laughs> I'm already yeah. trying to figure out how I can utilize this knowledge that the trap doesn't have to be in the slot for a speedrun. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think you can plug the trap team portal into and use it with uh, swap force. And you should be able to put the Swap Force character base on the main portal and a top, I haven't tried this, sort of top on the trap thing, and it should pick that up. That's yeah. fascinating and also extremely useful. Yes. Yeah. It, it's worth trying. You might have to put a keeper magnet on the little magnets that hold the Swap Force characters together. You might need to put a little metal bar across those to put the magnets and make the magnet circuit together. So is that how it like forces you to have the swap force characters together by having you like have to complete like a circuit? Um, well, not not really. The the okay, <laughs> all right. Technical dive. Swap force has the communication and swap force is done between two coils in the base of the character. One coil goes to the base. RFID tag, and the other coil goes to a little ferrite coil in the junction. And the upper one has another matching ferrite coil, and they just need to be lined up with each other. And to line them up with each other, we have two magnets, one, one north, one south, and that causes the characters to rotate into the right position. And then the ferrite transformer is lined up so it can read the tag in, in the upper part of the of the Skylander, of the Swap Force Skylander. And that's how that's the game amazing. knows which pairs are which pairs if you're using two swappers. Yeah, exactly. Well, they, they pretty much, it works by, the, if I remember right, the game software, because I didn't write that part of the software. I, I did the engineering on the tags and the uh, magnets to get the, the things to, to work, to, to connect and work together. If I remember right, though, the game uses timing. Basically, if two tags, two FID tags, one top, one bottom, appear on the portal right away at the same time or very close to the same time, then it auto pairs them up. So you can confuse swap force if you put two completed swappers on the portal at the same time. Um, it can get confused. They may even detect that and warn you to put them on one at a time. <laughs> I, I've forgotten now. Fun things to try. <laughs> I'm definitely going to be trying all of this. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's always fun to like experiment. I think with the portals, you know, being able to figure out like how how you can get other things to scan and like putting multiple portals next to each other and everything. It's it's quite fun. <laughs> yeah. Speaking of experimenting, the Light Course Skylanders are really fun to experiment with. And you feel kind of nerdy and geeky, but like if you go to um, I think BART, but I'm not sure if BART uses it, but some of the other metro transport systems use RFID tags. And you can hold your Skylander on the reader and see it glow. And I'm pretty sure you can do it on Apple Pay terminals as well. 
Yeah, I, I think that's just so cool because that, that was technology that back in like 2011, 2012, when Spyro's Adventure and Giants were coming out, that was used sparingly. Like you didn't see a lot of people, like a lot of companies wanting to use RFID kind of technology. But yeah. nowadays you see it in credit cards, you see it in pretty much every phone that's released, like you see it everywhere. And I can't help but wonder if people didn't look at Skylanders and the work you did and say, you know what, we could probably use that more often than we are right now. Yep. Before things like Apple Pay and the, the credit card readers came along, Skylanders was the largest purchaser of RFID reader chips. The RFID system has two components. One, one is the tag, which floats around and, and the things. And the other is the reader chip, which is what's in a portal. And we were NXP's largest buyer for reader chips for like two or three years by a significant margin, like, you know, hundreds to one over anybody else. Because most places used the readers in things like a, a subway system. And in a subway system, you have maybe, let's say you've got a big subway system, you've got a hundred stations. And each of those stations might have six or eight queues, you know, six or eight entry gates. And each entry gate has one RFID reader. So you're looking at maybe 500, 600 RFID readers for an entire subway system. We used 500 readers in half an hour's production at one point. <laughs> so we, we were literally using more readers than the rest of the world in a day. We were, we were doing that. That was at least three years we were doing that. <laughs> all through uh, Spyro's Adventure, Giants, and Swap Force. And it wasn't until the end of Swap Force that people started using RFID readers in, I think, some credit card readers. And then our numbers started to be eclipsed by the credit card readers. So really, we have Skylanders to thank for this ease of access to credit card technology and NFC technology in our phones now, which is just, I think that's pretty amazing. Mm -hmm. I think we had an impact. I wouldn't say we're really to blame for that, <laughs> but uh, but we definitely had an impact because I think we really helped bring the price of the um, reader um, ICs, particularly NXP's reader ICs, down because we were buying in, in such significant volume. Yeah, well, I mean, I think it makes sense too because this, I mean... No like yeah sure it's it's definitely magical and it's it seems so cool to be able to transfer information like that through the air but also at the same time it just makes sense from an accessibility standpoint like that's such a yeah. great kind of technology where you can just tap something and there you go like you've just entered the subway or you've just yeah. bought something it's just very accessible and very easy to use which i think is great yeah and now um even more so as we're recording this it's the we hope the tail end of the covid 19 pandemic non-contact interaction is really important you know being able to do things without actually touching or breathing or whatever yeah but i mean that, that's very true so the swap force redesign of the portal, it wasn't to add in the eight tags. It was just more of like an aesthetic thing and to cut down cost. Largely, yes. I think the marketing people said it was the, it was to do eight tags, but actually the Giants portal will do it as would do it as well. But there was a bit of tension there because one group of of Activision wanted to make a portalless version of the game for people who already had bought the previous version of the game and they did 
and then the part the department of activision that didn't want to have the extra inventory set the pricing and set the pricing high enough so that it wasn't actually that attractive to get it and that idea died <laughs> so there's there's some stuff going on <laughs> that was something that always kind of pop up sometimes like we saw it pop up in giants and i think we saw a portalless version pop up again in imaginators i think in the last game but even then those i think were walmart exclusive and i think they were like 50 bucks i believe yeah so yeah that, that's that's interesting background <laughs> info to know that there was kind of like should we do portalless should we not kind of going on in the activision headquarters at toys for bob at least we wanted to do portalless versions of the game we, we thought that was a, a good move for customer loyalty as well i mean the the, the first one was you, you know nobody needs 15 portals you know you, you don't need to have quite as many as as you end up with if you buy every skylanders game but it also um, is cust a customer loyalty thing like you you're saying well you already bought skylanders you already bought a portal you don't really need another one you can use your last one the best portal i think is the trap team one that that portal has the best reception and also the speaker and trap so it, wor it works i think the best with all of the games it's the only one that works with all the games is that your favorite portal out of all the I, ones you find yes of, of of the ones we did i think the trap team portal is definitely my favorite we had a new generation portal built that would have gone with imaginators but um, activision was in cost cutting mode and wanted us to reuse the superchargers portal because they had produced far more superchargers portals than they sold of superchargers so they had a lot of excess plastic and, and metal lying around and they refurbished though some for imaginators but we had a portal design for imaginators that if we'd done another game we would have used on the next generation we did have plans for imaginators 2 and probably even an imaginators 3 because there was plenty of room for exploring new uh new shapes and new body forms to go in imaginators and as far as we could tell um, 3d printing was just going to get better and better and we we would have leaned into um, make your own toys even more four-legged characters was um penciled and i mean actually people st we started doing some development work on doing four-legged characters for the sequel wow so what yeah. what ultimately i mean i guess since we're talking about it what ultimately was the deciding factor in deciding to have the franchise take a break it was a combination of economics and direction skylander's sales did really well for spire's adventure super well for giants really well for swap force then trap team wasn't as successful as as those it still did well superchargers did not do very well at all and imaginators bounced back superchargers had an overproduction on imaginators they had to go back to the factories and get them to produce more and eventually they they stopped by then the accounting part of activision i think had already decided that they were done with it because the risks of holding that much inventory and plastic was expensive and so they weren't as willing to sign off on it obviously if imaginators had done super 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 well they'd have revisited it and we would probably have done imaginators 2 a couple of years later but by the time imaginators was released they'd already started pulling the plug on further skylander products they they have the ip um, they could do another product it'll probably be a few years they may try and resurrect it as people who were kids 
and were into Skylanders want it coming in the future. That's, you know, that'll be beyond my involvement, but um, I, I have hope that they'll bring it back in a, in a few years time. The magic of Skylanders is not as, uh, you know, as, as you said, like every credit card, every phone has it built in. So that, that RFID magic is not there, not quite as magical. <laughs> it's a lot more commonplace, but uh, I'm sure some smart game designers and engineers will figure out some other trick to reinvigorate the magic in Skylanders. So you think that if they did bring it back, they wouldn't be able to use the NFC technology anymore. They'd have to do something else. No, I wouldn't say that. I think they would want to find some other magic. The NFC technology is just too good not to use. In two, three, four more years, even five years, it's going to be even less expensive than it is now. So I, I forget what the prices of our tags were. Let, let's imagine our tags were 20 cents. They're probably going to be less than 10 cents now, which makes making the toys more attractive. So you can make toys that end up being uh, costing um, less money to the purchaser, to the kids and the parents and grandparents of the kids who are the real audience for the game. And the reader chips are much, much, much less expensive now and much more capable and more specialized and, and smarter than they were when we started. You know, our first portal used generation one or generation two of NXP's reader chips. And the last portal, the uh, superchargers portal, we, we actually revved the printed circuit board for that for Imaginators. So some of the Imaginators portals have a fresh redesigned chipset that has a RFID reader. It's a one chip solution to the portal. Basically that chip lights the LEDs, communicates through USB and to NFC all in one chip, which meant that the production cost was down and, and that's really the, the, the issue. So I think they would continue to use NFC. If they wait 10 years, then they might not use NFC, but if they're, if they're doing it in the next five, I, I think they'd be silly not to use NFC. A question about the chips themselves, since I think a lot of people have started to get worried about it, and I'm sure you know you as the tech expert will be able to give a good solid answer to this. How long do the NFC chips last? Like, how, how long will they be able to work before we're not able to bring the toys to life? Hmm, that's a good question. <laughs> I will tell you that one of my buddies at TFB set up a reader and a computer and put a tag on it and started reading and writing the tag continuously 24 hours a day. You know, the tags are rated, were originally rated for a million read writes. Later on, they upped that to 5 million read writes. No change in the technology, they'd just done more testing. And then they upped it again to 10 million read writes. But um, Sammy, my buddy, um, did, uh, I think he did, was still doing 20 million read writes. And he had two portals fail and one computer fail before the tag failed. So he had to change portals twice and a computer once in order to break the tags. So Electronically, I think they're pretty robust. They, they will last a really long time. The bit that doesn't last quite so long is the glue and the, the attachment method to the tag itself, which is like this little mylar plastic with an aluminium uh, antenna on it. And that, I, I, you know, that will vary on how well treated the toy is. If the toy's put in extreme heat or frozen, I think it's likely to break earlier. We had some of the early Giants toys failed. Mostly they failed in QA, but I think a few got out into the into the real world that had a, 
a poor glue, con the conductive glue that joins them together failed, and um, Activision just replaced those toys as as people reported problems with them. Sometimes the Mylar tags fail. Either the Mylar has a flaw or the tag has a flaw, so there'll be a few like that. But there isn't any reason why those toys, if they're treated well, shouldn't last 10, 15, 20 years. That's yeah. actually really good to know, because I have been worried about that recently. Right. Yeah. I, I've still got toys from Spyro's Adventure that work and from pre-production, like ones that we were doing experiments and development on where the tag, tags are still fine. And that's more than 10 years now. There we go. So un unless you're playing thousands upon thousands of hours of Skylanders, there's nothing to worry about. Quite right. And, and, and I, I do recommend not leaving them out in the snow or in the desert sun or <laughs> and the Spyro's Adventure ones, at least those were pretty waterproof because we did do bath tests on those. So you so your kid could take them into the bath. And and we know plenty of kids did. <laughs> Later ones weren't quite so good. Like um, I think some of the giants weren't as waterproof because they had the wiring inside them. If you soaked them in water, they would eventually fail. <laughs> okay, that's that's another factor that I didn't know. Spyro's Adventure characters are waterproof. Let, let, me, let me rephrase that because in case I get into legal troubles, water resistant. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Awesome. So I guess, you know, we've been talking a lot about uh, RFID chips and everything. So why in the first place did you decide to use NFC as opposed to like, you know, we've seen other Toys to Life games like Starlink that uses those connectors to be able to piece everything together. So why did you decide to use NFC as opposed to any other way to bring them to life? There were two things that we really wanted. One is we wanted that sense of magic particularly the coming to life moment when your toy appeared in the game. In fact, the game code, the subroutine that, that handles that, that Dan Gerstein wrote and developed for months was called the magic moment. And that was the moment the toy appeared in the game. We needed it to be really easy, very simple for kids to use and very fast. Those were the, those are things that, that was the, that was the, overriding consideration. So we wanted the the moment that you put the toy into the game to be absolutely magical. And Spyro's Adventure, we we feel like we really nailed that, that, that it felt so good to put your toy into the game. Even the order that the data is arranged on the tag was set up so that we could load data as the tag was being read, we would load data in and use it to animate the magic moment. So the very first pieces of data that come in are the toy type, some color scheme, and the element, and a couple of other things like that, so that we can set up that magic moment really fast. We did some experiments with a bunch of different connection systems. One of the ones we looked at was one wire, which is a misnomer. It's not really one wire, it's two, but for some reason the marketing people called it one wire. They, they lied, it's two. We also tried different RFID tags that was made by a different company, but it was read-only. The second consideration was we wanted to be able to store data on the toy. Activision's engineering group, they, they hired a, a company to do some development work with that one, 
And it was pretty clear that that wasn't the solution. They were concerned about sourcing the, when you have an engineering project, you have to worry about a lot of things like, is there a second source? Can you buy the chips from somebody else if your primary manufacturer go, goes down? Or or is your primary manufacturer large enough that you're going to be able to, to get the quantities that you need? Because we were talking about making millions of toys. We wanted to be able to get millions of these chips. So that supplier failed on that side and being read only so you couldn't like save your data to the to the to the toy meant that we couldn't do the neat things which is you know little little johnny's got his got his toy bash that he really loves and he's renamed it it's completed three of its goals and he's going to take it over to sally's house and play with her and he wants his bash to appear in her game and it'll work and those were sort of like really important to us because we really wanted the, the child to feel that imagination and that sense of, this isn't just a toy, this is my friend, this is my character. So many stories we got of kids. Um, one of Iwe's kids would always turn his Skylanders to point them to the screen so they could see what was going on, which is like, you know, such a life-affirming moment. Like, you know, you, you know you're hitting it with the kids when they're visualizing the world, they're shifting their point of view to the toy's point of view, which, is, which was really neat. That's really what we were looking for when we developed it. Yeah, I think that magic is definitely there. I think you pulled it off. Thanks. I mean, it was a lot of work, and I've got to give Dan Gerstein, who was one of the primary uh, game designers, um, a lot of credit for getting that as magic as it was, particularly in um, the first two games. So what was the early prototyping like for designing the portal, and why did you end up going with the design that you did? The early prototypes used a printed circuit board that we got from a company in Turkey, bare bits of wire. There's photos of some of the stuff, and we had them on back-to-back -back paper plates and um, somebody had an inverted cup over one. I've got one where we used a bit of plumbing pieces to create for lighting effects. There was a lot of cobbling together of wires and the earliest portals like that all plugged into the bottom of uh, a Wiimote. So you, you had the yeah. early portals plugging into the Wii remote? Yes, the earliest portals, the, the portals that we did the first like year of year or year and a half of development, maybe almost two years of development, literally plugged into the bottom of a Wiimote. Wow. So I, I imagine that there was probably some reason why you decided to change that, probably for like the play testing, having to have the portal plugged into the Wii remote all the time might have not been as great feeling as, as it maybe could have been. <laughs> Yeah, people tend to shake their Wiimotes around, particularly since the game called on you to do that, and the little cable would tug and the portal would fall over and your toy would disconnect. And yeah, there were lots of reasons not to do it that way. Activision had a, a hardware engineering group at that time. It was a company called Red Octane. Red Octane did the Guitar Hero guitars, and they had uh, connections with ma the appropriate manufacturing groups in China and Hong Kong. And local engineering talent, in particular Tim. Tim was their uh, sort of lead engineer and he figured a lot of the stuff out. He was the one that we coordinated with the most on, on engineering decisions. We'd already built a number of NFC type portals at 
Toys for Bob that went through the Wii Nunchuck. But our engineering design, I mean, basically our game design, pretty much needed to use USB as the connector. We wanted to do wireless. There was a big debate internally about wired versus wireless. Activision's marketing really wanted us to use wireless um, as well. And we did a lot of design work with the people at Red Octane on making the portal be manufacturable, wireless, and NFC compliant. And we, the, the design we came up with, we wanted it to match the toys to some extent, which is why it has the ring light on it and the early ones, the Spyro's Adventure ones, have the green ring on them because that green ring was to match the green fluorescent bases on the Skylanders, on the toys. And we didn't know how many years we'd be able to do Skylanders, but by the time we got to doing the bases, we knew we were going to do a second edition. We were going, we were going to do Giants, and we'd already picked orange as our second color. I actually have in my basement portals with green rings and orange rings because we were going to do the Giants portals with orange rings. They eventually decided to go with gray rings because they wanted to be able to use the same portal for future games, uh, which didn't happen, but you know that's the decision that was made at the time. That portal was very successful. It worked quite well, but it was a little bit expensive to manufacture and so each subsequent portal the engineering group would work on reducing the cost of the portal which meant we could either lower the price of the games or be more competitive in the market with the other companies that came along afterwards you know the Disney Infinity and uh, Lego and Nintendo they wanted to be wanted to maintain some price advantage over them as well there's always restrictions that we get thrown into but um, but for the first one it was all about making it magic which meant wireless that that's so cool that you have like orange ring portals that's very yeah. cool yeah we, um, we had p planned out to use the fluorescent bases for a number of years but then we kind of ran out of fluorescent colors <laughs> so is that why in superchargers they decided to switch off of using the colored base designs uh not exactly i think that was part of the decision it was also um there, there were tensions shall we say between vv and activision and TFB over which way things should go. And VV pulled very hard for what became superchargers. So they went with this engine motif as their base. Like I think they could still have done more colors, but I don't think anyone really wanted to use yellow, which would, which would have been the next fluorescent color to use because the yellow, uh, I, I guess I can say this looks a little too much like P. And I don't think any of them, any of the companies, wanted to use that as a fluorescent color on their on their portals. They already used blue, but I think they could easily have used a pink or a purple fluorescent, and we might well have gone back to that if we'd stuck with fluorescent color bases. But it it changes. Every new marketing or artistic guy comes along wants to change it to put their little signature in. So it, it, it that's what happens. So what was the best part about working on the Skylanders team? The, the people in the project, Toys for Bob was at the time, and, and I think it's still a good place, but it would, at the time it was a great place to work. We had really good camaraderie all the way through Trap Team. Everybody really loved the project and the way we were working. Alex Ness did such a good job writing the characters and scripts and storylines with lots of really good humor. We had really good 
character designs from Eway and well well implemented and well designed. For me personally, it was a really great opportunity to reconnect with my sort of electronics hobby roots and to be really inventive. Between all of the people at Toys for Bob, I think we ended up filing over 20 different patents on things that were done in Skylanders. As an engineer, a patent is one of those things where it's like it's like a little achievement. You know, there are people who will chalk up how many hundred patents they've filed, all that kind of stuff. For me, that's not as important as knowing that you've done that. You've done something that's unique and, and interesting and that has kind of really touched people. There were so many kids and so many really touching stories, some that'll literally make you choke up because they were so either sad or poignant. We gave away dozens of games and did visits to hospitals for Make-A-Wish things. There were, there were lots of stuff like that. And we would get mail almost every day of kids drawing Skylanders and drawing Skylanders in different situations. And we used to do studio tours. I coach uh, youth soccer teams and so uh, Skylanders Giants had been released and I got to bring my soccer team in for a, um, for a, a studio tour. Best coach ever. Uh, <laughs> but uh, it was just the right mix of people to get this particular project done. We had people who wanted to build models, be doing the electronics, the designers wanting to do, to push the edge of the design envelope and to create a product that would work for kids and for and for the parents of the kids because you know, so many of us also had young children. My, my son at that age was already well past playing Skylanders, but now my grandkids play it. And uh, we had a number of the people at work who had kids the right age to play it. And so it was always fun to be able to do little playtest sessions with the kids of people who worked there. But yeah, it was super good. Some of those kids, by the way, became our best uh, advocates. There's a story about making the toys, taking them down to Activision to show off. A group of the executives wanted us to leave the toys there. And that was kind of like pulling teeth because we only had a half a dozen toys. So we had to make another batch of them. But they said, oh, yeah, we'll get them back to you. And of course, those executives took the toys home, showed them to their kids. The kids fell in love with them and wouldn't give them back. <laughs> so <laughs> those kids became our best uh, advocates and uh, probably helped us convince the executive group that this was a winning project. It was wonderful. It was like, yes, we had to keep remaking the damn toys because they were all, at this point, the toys were hand painted. They were resin cast. And we, we'd set up a little mini production line and hand paint them and then add tags to them with, you know, basically sticking tags on the base and add them to the sort of dictionary of characters in the game until we got real tags. And then even after we got real tags, we were still making toys that would end up in the executive kids' <laughs> hands. It's great to know that you got that good of a reception immediately. Right. Well, so what was an average day like at the Toys for Bob offices while working on Skylanders? For me, in, in particular, it depended a lot on which version of the game we were talking about. In um, Spyro's Adventure and Giants, in addition to doing the electronics 
stuff. I was also programming on the game itself. So I, I was doing coding in, in the game engine and I was mostly with the engineering group, which was, you know, about a half dozen programmers. As Spyro's Adventure got closer and closer to things, I ended up moving. And, and by the time Giants was rolling, Eway and I were sitting next to each other because we were bouncing ideas off each other constantly. Um, and it was out of that that Lightcore came out. We'd made the decision to go with, with Giants as a theme. I'd built a device just to tell me whether the portal was on, which was just an LED on a coil. And that let me know that a portal was on or working so I could quickly test them. And I showed it to you and he said, could this go inside a toy? Sure, why not? I think the first one we did was a prison break. Prison break was our go-to character for new experiments because he's super easy to modify and we could do all kinds of things. Prison Break's arms will fit into the trap slot because the first traps we built were made out of Prison Break's arms. We had a little hospital ward of um, mutilated Prison Breaks that we'd scavenged for bits of plastic and parts and stuff. So the first traps had used that. And I think one of the other characters had Prison Break's arms as in, in his helmet. Blaster Mind. That's a Blaster Mind. Blaster yeah. Mind. yeah, he's got, got the helmet with spikes, with uh, crystal spikes or something. And those are the yeah. same basic shape and will fit into a trap team trap as well. By the time we were doing giants, we were also doing a lot more 3D printing. So instead of building uh, models of the toys using resin casting, we had transitioned to doing 3D prints and we had a color 3D printer. That's the same technology that was used for the color 3D prints in Imaginators. By the time Imaginators came around, we had a lot of experience with that 3D printer and knew what it could and couldn't do. We used that to build the um, prototypes of a lot of the toys, basically to get a sense and a feel for how you would play with the toy and interact with the toy and just how it looked visually. You, you know, you have to look at it from all different angles and Ewe had some pretty good design methods for getting the characters to be kind of appealing. And to, if you look almost all the toys for Bob Skylanders, the characters looking slightly up, the eyes are positioned and focused looking up a little bit and it's as though they're looking at something that's about three to four feet away from them and that's meant to be you so when you put the character on the portal the toy looks at you and that adds to the attachment it's psychology but it's also friendly it helps kids develop attachment to the toys if it's seen to be looking at you <laughs> like i'm noticing right now i have a frino on my desk and it is actually looking directly up at me yeah, I'm looking at yep. Funny Bone, and Funny Bone's also looking looking right up, too. That's yeah. interesting. Frino is one of the VB ones. In and this case, it's the Trap Team Frino. Hogwild oh, Frino. Oh. oh, yeah. They did do yeah. a Series 2. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But we also did the repeat characters for Swap Force. So the characters in Swap Force that, that were in the earlier games, those were done by Toys for Bob. All of the rest of the Swap Force characters were done by Vicarious Visions. And in Superchargers, all of the characters were done by VV. Uh, Toys for Bob had no involvement. Um, marketing finally realized that the reposes weren't as popular toys. It's like, if you already have three Gilgrunts, why do you want another one? <laughs> I mean, admittedly, I do, because I collected all of the Gilgrunts, but <laughs> but I, you know, not everybody has the, a love of fishmen like I do. <laughs> yeah, uh, Gilgrunt did get a lot of reposes, that is for sure. Even with the Vicarious Visions redesign and Superchargers, you know, he, he's still Gilgrunt. <laughs> yep, yep. Do you have any advice for aspiring programmers and engineers? 
there's two things that I think that companies are looking for. They're looking for people who will work hard and show imagination. But one of the most important things is that they're looking for people who will work through to completing a project. One of the big things about going to college and getting a degree is, yes, you learn a bit in college, and some of it's applicable to, to your work, but it shows that you're able to complete something. You're able to take something through to completion. If you don't have a degree, it's not that important. If you can show that you can bring a project to completion. If you're working on a little mobile game, make it, publish it, even if you don't actually make any money from your mobile game, or even if it's a free-to-play game or a free game, but you've completed it, you've seen it through each step of the way along in the project. That counts for more than having a degree or being a bright, bouncy, bubbly person. Those are nice, don't get me wrong. It's good to have a good personality and to get on well with the people at work, and that that's a, that can be a make or break thing. But if you've completed a project and the guy next to you or the woman next to you hasn't completed a project, you're more likely to get the nod than they are because you've shown that you can get to the end of a project because it's the last 10% that is the hardest. Even though you know, you've know you done 90% of the work to getting it published, once you've got it published, there's a whole world of things that can reach up and bite you that you weren't aware of until you've reached that point. So showing that you can complete something, I think, is one of the biggest things you can do. So as the first 10 years draws to a close, if you could say one thing to the fans about how you feel about the franchise and the community, what would it be? There's a sense of pride I mean, we did something at the time was that was pretty unique and everybody working on it was really happy to be working on it. And I'd like to think that that showed through um, in the product itself. We have lots of fans and lots of loyal fans that we're really grateful for and that we, that we like and, and respect an awful lot. Some of the people who've been long-term fans of Skylanders uh, do some amazing stuff. I, I still read threads on Reddit and, and other social media platforms of people that are still enjoying playing Skylanders. It's a game that is timeless. It can, could still be played by little kids today. They have that access to the hardware and they would still enjoy it. So we're, we're really, we're pretty, pretty happy. There's a good sense of contentment. We would love, I, I know, speaking as for most of us who worked on it, we would love for it to continue. Whether that's going to happen is completely in Activision's hands and we, we don't know where that's going where that's going to go. It was a super fun project to work on, and we were really happy that people liked it. Sort of like the tail end of my childhood was Skylanders for me. Like it was it was my high school. It was part of my college. Uh, and now here as an adult, you know, I still appreciate this franchise so much, and it means a lot to me. Uh, you know, it, I remember playing it with friends. Um, I love live streaming it. It's just I really think that it touched a lot of people. There are there are like anecdotes of, of things. We had a play test with little kids before the game was released. And the kids were playing in the conference room, I think. We, we had them separated out from each other. And one of the kids, I forget which character he was playing. I think it might have been Whirlwind. And he really liked the character, the toy and the, the character, the little rainbows that shot out. And this little boy really loved it. And poor Whirlwind was getting beat up. And you could see the kid getting a bit more worked up. And he grabbed Whirlwind and y yanked it off the portal. 
before it would die, then substitute another toy in. And you could see that he didn't want Whirlwind to get hurt, and he'd pulled the toy off the portal. He'd figured out that if he pulled it off the portal, it would save Whirlwind from being hurt. All the designers were sitting around, and they, we, and they, they watched this, and every one of them was like, yes, this has worked. That's awesome that the kids get it, you know, that this is, this is something that's going to work. I mean, there are a number of kind of defining moments, and that was definitely one of them. I, I don't remember who the kid was, but it was one of the early playtest sessions, and, and they, they recognized that if they pulled the toy off the portal, they could save it. And you could see that the, the kid had developed this attachment and, and was using the, the meta game to save his character, which, was, which is a, a, a great development step like i mean i wouldn't want whirlwind to die either so i totally yeah. understand that hey as an aside i listened to the gender representation podcast that you guys did we tried really hard to include female characters in the game when we brought the game to activision and it got shown to a bunch of toy companies and they hired some executives from toy companies to help guide them through it. And one guy in particular, we started off with a pretty antagonistic relationship with, but later on became much better. And, and I think we opened his horizons as much as he broadened ours. And the toy industry has some kind of hard and fast rules for how toys should be presented you know which is why you end up with the girls aisle being full of pink and purple packages and the boys aisle full of blue and black packaging the rules are things like girl characters don't appeal to boys and green toys don't sell very well and uh, there was a whole list of things that were just kind of crazy and, and we didn't believe them and you know having raised kids we felt that they stereotyped themselves and so we went out of our way to try and include characters in the games whose gender you couldn't tell or you could assign yourself and characters that were definitely female as well as male. And we also tried really hard to include some characters that were green just because. So that's why, where we ended up with Stump Smash and Sunburn that was actually like the most hard to get and valued character from Spyro's Adventure because they didn't make very many of them and, and it didn't get reposed. Why they thought green toys wouldn't work when you know marvel had made hulk and hulk is like one of the more popular of the marvel superheroes i i don't know where that one came from but i just wanted to let you know that we had done that i remember dan whose name i mentioned before at one point we were having this discussion and he said i can't believe i, that I work for a company where we can discuss the length and breadth of our androgynous unicorns rainbow attack and everyone looked at and said Oh yeah, we did. We just spent an hour discussing how the unicorn's rainbow attack would actually work. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, like that's yeah. that's great because mm. you know, like I, I will say, and I don't think we mentioned it on the episode when we probably should have, is that Skylanders does, in terms of the toy lines that were out at the time, they did have way better gender proportions compared to the other toy lines that were out there. So yeah. that's that's definitely true. But, you know, still, like, uh, it's 80 to 20%, usually, depending on the game. I, I wish there were more, because some of the female characters in Skylanders are, in my opinion, some of the best. Like, we have Splat from Superchargers with Vicarious Visions. Yeah. Splat was definitely a good character. We liked Splat. One of my favorites is the, and I've forgotten her name, but the Berserker woman with the big horns that rams things, knocks things over from uh, Trap Team. Ah, uh, yes, Headrush. Headrush, oh, yeah. 
she was a lot of fun to play and to develop to maybe she's not one of the more popular characters but i know that in development we, we had a lot of fun running her around test levels knocking things over <laughs> i love her design i think her design's great she definitely isn't one of the more popular fan characters but i yeah. think her overall look is incredible uh, and we talk about whirlwind a lot we love world the rainbows you know the pride rainbows we have is yeah you know, so we, yeah, absolutely. Um, yes. we, we do appreciate that. Mysticat as well, we, we appreciate as well, because he kind of has that non-binary color scheme going on with him. But it, it's sad to know that it was that hard to try to get those proportions. Yeah, and unfortunately it really was. Spyro's Adventure, I think, we did a lot of that without the toy industry involvement. I mean, it, we, we had consultants and people come in it should have been easier, but it actually, in some ways, got more difficult to put like more female and more representational characters in as the thing progressed. I, I will say that the, the CEO of Activision, um, Hirschberg, was very supportive. He was really good. He, he had a kid that was the right age for Skylanders, and he got it and was involved in approving pretty much all of the designs for characters, Iwe and Paul would go down to Activision in Santa Monica every couple of weeks and go through designs and sketches and um, things with Eric. And he had a large hand in the um, in where Skylanders was, particularly the first editions, the Spyro's Adventure and Giants. But he, he was very supportive of that concept as well and when the toy people said you need more male toys and less green ones he was more supportive of us and of the project than them so yeah, i, I, I think, give him credit. i think that shows from the interviews that he did for skylanders as well yeah because like he he always like whenever like he was involved at the toy fair reveals he was involved in all these things and he was always out on stage just nailing it you could tell that he was genuinely excited about skylanders yeah yeah part of the success of skylanders was we had this mix of people that wanted to do it and i think part of the demise of skylanders or at least the hiatus of skylanders was the fact that um, eric hirschberg i think he left the year after skylanders was shuttered i think we might still be making skylanders if hirschberg was still doing it <laughs> but, uh, oh wow yeah. wow I would like to point out the fact that you said that when it came to the toy companies, you didn't believe that green toys didn't sell, and you didn't believe that female characters don't appeal to male characters. Not only did you clearly not believe that, but you went and proved that it's false with Stealth yeah. Elf. Yeah. yeah. And Stealth Elf was, is probably, after Spyro, probably the most popular character. I think she's probably more popular than Tree Rex, who was probably the most popular character in Giants. Oh yeah, don't get me wrong, I love Tree Rex. I, yeah. I really do. But yeah, Stealth Elf is great. She's empowering, her personality is great, her attacks are great. Like, everything yeah. about Stealth Elf is just a great package. Yeah. So no no wonder they that Stealth Elf kept getting reposes every year, because yeah. she, she deserves them. She does. And she also was really significant in the TV series, too, the cartoons. And yeah, Ditto, you made an amazing point. Green yeah. and female, proven yep. both wrong. Yeah, both wrong, most successful toy. Good job, toy industry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, well, 
thank you so much for joining us for this interview. I think we've gotten so much more information about how the portal works, how it was concepted, and just more about the characters and what it was like to work at Toys for Bob. So thank you so much for joining us. Yes, thank you immensely. Uh, you're most welcome. It, it was fun. It was great to talk to both of you. The pleasure is ours. Yeah, absolutely. Like, it's such an honor to talk to you. The work that you did on the Portal of Power alone is just mind-blowing to me. And to know that that technology is everywhere now, and that's in part due to Skylanders, is just so cool. This segment might be over, but don't touch that dial, baby. Stay tuned for another segment of the Skylanders 10th anniversary celebration. Until then, this is Chill Bill, signing off. It's like supposed to be like he grabbed all the furniture and appliances and stuff out of your room and kitchen, whatever was around you, you know, and pulled it into the game with him there to then throw at your character and everything. Like, I think that stuff is so cool that they kind of let the lines between reality and the game get blurred a little bit. I didn't realize there were that many pink flamingos out in the world. So many of those happened during that boss fight. It's perfect for me since I live in Florida because they're everywhere down here. <laughs> oh my gosh.